Section 24 The Private Memoirs and Confessions of a Sinner Written by Himself by James Hogg This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. I was conducted into the other end of the house, among looms, treadles, perns, and confusion without end. And there, in a sort of box, was I shut up for the night's repose. For the weaver, as he left me, cautiously turned the key of my apartment, and left me to shift for myself among the looms, determined that I should escape from the house with nothing. After he and his wife and children were crowded into their den, I heard the two mates contending furiously about me in suppressed voices, the one maintaining the probability that I was the murderer, and the other proving the impossibility of it. The husband, however, said as much as let me understand that he had locked me up on purpose to bring the military or officers of justice, to seize me. I was in the utmost perplexity. Yet for all that, and the eminent danger I was in, I fell asleep, and a more troubled and tormenting sleep never enchained a mortal frame. I had such dreams that they will not bear repetition, and early in the morning I awaked feverish and parched with thirst. I went to call mine host, that he might let me out to the open air, but before doing so, I thought it necessary to put on some clothes. In attempting to do this, a circumstance arrested my attention, for which I could in no wise account, which to this day I cannot unriddle nor shall I ever be able to comprehend it while I live. The frock and turban, which had furnished my disguise on the preceding day, were both removed, and my own black coat and cocked hat laid down in their place. At first I thought I was in a dream, and felt the weaver's beam, web, and treadle strings with my hands, to convince myself that I was awake. I was certainly awake, and there was the door, locked firm and fast as it was the evening before. I carried my own black coat to the small window and examined it. It was my own in verity, and the sums of money that I had concealed in case of any emergency remained untouched. I trembled with astonishment, and on my return from the small window went doiting in amongst the weaver's looms, till I entangled myself, and could not get out again without working great deray amongst the coarse linen threads that stood in warp from one end of the apartment unto the other. I had no knife whereby to cut the cords of this wicked man and therefore was obliged to call out lustily for assistance. The weaver came half-naked, unlocked the door, 
and setting in his head and long neck, accosted me thus. What now, Mr. Satan? What for art ye roaring that gate? Are ye fawn in a little hell instead of the big muckalane? Deal be in your resisted trams. What for have ye absconded yourself into my lattice web for? Friend, I, I beg your pardon, said I. I wanted to be at the light, and have somehow unfortunately involved myself in the intricacies of your web, from which I cannot get clear without doing you a great injury. Pray, do lend your experienced hand to extricate me. May all the pearls of damnation light on your silly snout, and I didna excrete ye will enough. Ye did it, Donat, deal's bird that ye be. What made ye gang howkin' in there to be a poor man's ruin? Come out, ye vile rag of a muffin, or I gar ye come out we mare shame and disgrace, and fewer hail banes in your body. My feet had slipped down through the double warpings of a web, and not being able to reach the ground with them, there being a small pit below, I rode upon a number of yielding threads, and there being nothing else that I could reach to extricate myself was impossible. I was utterly powerless, and besides, the yarn and cords hurt me very much. For all that, the destructive weaver seized a loom spoke and began a-beating me most unmercifully. While entangled as I was, I could do nothing but shout aloud for mercy or assistance, whichever chanced to be within hearing. The latter at length made its appearance in the form of the weaver's wife, in the same state of dishabile with himself, who instantly interfered and that most strenuously on my behalf. Before her arrival, however, I had made a desperate effort to throw myself out of the entanglement I was in, for the weaver continued repeating his blows and cursing me so that I determined to get out of his meshes at any risk. The effect made my case worse for my feet being wrapped among the nether threads as I threw myself from my saddle on the upper ones, my feet brought the others up through these, and I hung with my head down and my feet as firm as they had been in a vice. The predicament of a web being thereby increased, the weaver's wrath was doubled in proportion, and he laid on without mercy. At this critical juncture, the wife arrived, and without hesitation rushed before her offended lord, withholding his hand from injuring me further, although that it was uplifted along with the loom spoke in overbearing err. Dear Johnny, I think ye began dementin this morning. Be quiet, my dear, and dinna begin a bottle brig business in ye ain house. What for ere ye persecute in the servant of the Lord's that gate, 
and pitting the life out of him with his head down and his heels up. Had ye said a servant of the deals, Nans, ye weighed hay been near the nail, for gin he been a the old on himself, he's gain sib till him. There, didn't I lock him in on purpose to bring the military on him? And in the place of that, has not he kept at me and asleep by this while as deep as death? And here do I find him absconded like a speeder i the mids of my laddie's web, and me dreamin' of the night that I had the deal I in my house, and that he was a clapper clawin' me aunt the loom. Have at you, you breast-ained thief! And in spite of the good woman's struggles, he lent me another severe blow. Now, Johnny Dodds, my man! Oh, Johnny Dodds! Think if that be like a Christian, and ain't o the heroes o body brig, to entertain a stranger, and then bind him in a web wee his head down, and mell him to death. Oh, Johnny Dodds, think what you are about. Slack a pin, and let the good honest religious lad out. The weaver was rather overcome, but still stood to his point that I was the deal, though in better temper. And as he slackened the web to release me, he remarked, half laughing, What what he thought that John Dodds should he escape it at the snares and dangers that circumfaulted him, and at last should he weaved a net to catch the deal. The wife released me soon, and carefully whispered me, at the same time, that it would be as well for me to dress and be going. I was not long in obeying, and dressed myself in my black clothes, hardly knowing what I did, what to think, or whither to betake myself. I was sore hurt by the blows of the desperate ruffian, and what was worse, my ankle was so much strained that I could hardly set my foot to the ground. I was obliged to apply to the weaver once more to see if I could learn anything about my clothes, or how the change was effected. Sir, said I, how comes it that you have robbed me of my clothes, and put these down in their place overnight? Ha <laughs> ha! Ta class! Me put down the class, said he, gaping with astonishment, and touching the clothes with the point of his forefinger. I never saw them afore, as I have death to meet we, so help me God. He strode into the workhouse where I slept, to satisfy himself that my clothes were not there, and returned perfectly aghast with consternation. The doors were baith fast locket, said he. I could hae defied a rat either to hae gotten out or in. My dream has been true. My dream has been true. The Lord judge between thee and me, but in his name I charge you to depart out of this house and gin it be your will. Dinna take the bride's side unto we, but gang quietly out at the door we your face foremost. Wife, let not o' oh, this enchantments remain i the house, to be a curse and a snare to us. Gang and bring him his guilted weapon. And may the Lord protect a his ain against its hellish and deadly point. 
The wife went to seek my poignard, trembling so excessively that she could hardly walk. And shortly after, we heard a feeble scream from the pantry. The weapon had disappeared with the clothes, though under double lock and key, and the terror of the good people having now reached a disgusting extremity, I thought proper to make a sudden retreat, followed by the weaver's anathemas. My state, both of body and mind, was now truly deplorable. I was hungry, wounded, and lame an outcast and a vagabond in society. My life sought after with avidity, and all for doing that to which I was predestined by him, who foreordains whatever comes to pass. I knew not whither to betake me. I had purposed going into England, and there making some use of the classical education I had received but my lameness rendered this impracticable for the present. I was therefore obliged to turn my face towards Edinburgh, where I was little known, where concealment was more practicable than by skulking in the country, and where I might turn my mind to something that was great and good. I had a little money, both Scotch and English, now in my possession, but not one friend in the whole world on whom I could rely. One devoted friend, it is true, I had, but he was become my greatest terror. To escape from him, I now felt that I would willingly travel to the farthest corners of the world and be subjected to every deprivation but after the certainty of what had taken place last night, after I had traveled thirty miles by secret and by ways, I saw not how escape from him was possible. Miserable, forlorn, and dreading every person that I saw, either behind or before me, I hasted on towards Edinburgh, taking all the by and unfrequented paths, and the third night after I left the weaver's house, I reached the west port, without meeting with anything remarkable. Being exceedingly fatigued and lame, I took lodgings in the first house I entered, and for these I was to pay two groats a week, and to board and sleep with a young man who wanted a companion to make his rent easier. I liked this, having found from experience that the great personage who had attached himself to me and was now become my greatest terror among many surrounding evils generally haunted me when I was alone, keeping aloof from all other society. My fellow lodger came home in the evening and was glad at my coming. His name was Linton, and I changed mine to Elliot. He was a flippant, unstable being, one on whom nothing appeared a difficulty in his own estimation, but who could affect very little after all. He was what is called by some a compositor in the Queen's Printing House, then conducted by a Mr. James Watson. 
In the course of our conversation that night, I told him I was a first-rate classical scholar and would gladly turn my attention to some business wherein my education might avail me something and that there was nothing would delight me so much as an engagement in the Queen's printing office. Linton made no difficulty in bringing about that arrangement. His answer was, Oh, God, sir, you are the very man we want. Good bless your breast and your buttons, sir. Aye, that's neither here nor there. That's all very well. Ha, ha, ha. A byword in the house, sir. But as I was saying, you are the very man we want. You will get any money you like to ask, sir. Any money you like, sir. God bless your buttons. That's settled, all done, settled, settled. I'll do it, I'll do it. No more about it, no more about it. Settled, settled. The next day, I went with him to the office, and he presented me to Mr. Watson as the most wonderful genius and scholar ever known. His recommendation had little sway with Mr. Watson, who only smiled at Linton's extravagances as one does at the prattle of an infant. I sauntered about the printing office for the space of two or three hours, during which time Watson bustled about with green spectacles on his nose and took no heed of me. But seeing that I still lingered, he addressed me at length in a civil, gentlemanly way and inquired concerning my views. I satisfied him with all my answers, in particular those to his questions about the Latin and Greek languages. But when he came to ask testimonials of my character and acquirements, and found that I could produce none, he viewed me with a jealous eye, and said he dreaded I was some near do will, run from my parents or guardians, and he did not choose to employ any such. I said my parents were both dead, and that being thereby deprived of the means of following out my education, it behooved me to apply to some business in which my education might be of some use to me. He said he would take me into the office and pay me according to the business I performed and the manner in which I deported myself but he could take no man into Her Majesty's printing office upon a regular engagement who could not produce the most respectable references with regard to morals. I could not but despise the man in my heart who laid such a stress upon morals, leaving grace out of the question, and viewed it as a deplorable instance of human depravity and self-conceit. But for all that, I was obliged to accept of his terms, for I had an inward thirst and longing to distinguish myself in the great cause of religion, and I thought, if once I could print my own works, how I would astonish mankind, and confound their self-wisdom and their esteemed morality. Blow up the idea of any dependence on good works, and morality forsooth. And I weaned that I might thus get me a name even higher than if I had been made a general of the Tsar Peter's troops against the infidels.
I attended the office some hours every day, but got not much encouragement. Though I was eager to learn everything, and could soon have set types considerably well. It was here that I first conceived the idea of writing this journal, and having it printed and applied to Mr. Watson to print it for me, telling him it was a religious parable such as the Pilgrim's Progress. He advised me to print it close, and make it a pamphlet, and then, if it did not sell, it would not cost me much. But that religious pamphlets, especially if they had a shade of allegory in them, were the very rage of the day. I put my work to the press, and wrote early and late, and encouraging my companion to work at odd hours and on Sundays, before the press work of the second sheet was begun. We had the work all in types, corrected, and a clean copy thrown off for further revisal. The first sheet was wrought off, and I never shall forget how my heart exulted when at the printing house this day I saw what numbers of my works were to go abroad among mankind. And I determined with myself that I would not put the border name of Eliot, which I had assumed, to the work. End of section 24